Well, good morning, Liberty. If you don't know me yet, uh, like Matt said, my name is Will. I serve as the student pastor at Paramount Baptist Church in Amarillo, Texas. And this morning I do bring greetings from Pastor Jeremy and Angie and all of his crew. Um, I can just say this honestly, they love all of you dearly. Um, he doesn't speak nearly as highly of us as he does of you guys. So y'all obviously treated him incredibly well while he was here. Um, and we're very thankful to have him with us as well. So um, I just want to say thank you. I am aware of and appreciate the difficulty of y'all's current season, having just lived through it. And so um, y'all are doing a great job. And I can tell you that God is immensely faithful even in the midst of seasons like this, and I know he will be faithful to you. So if you will, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm 127. Um, while you're turning there, I'll tell you all a little story. It's less of, more of an observation than a story, but I've gotten to travel a lot this year. And I don't normally get to travel a lot. It's just the way mine and my wife's life has kind of worked out. We got to go to a convention in New Orleans. We've gotten to go back home to see my parents in Alabama because I'm not from this weird place with no trees and no water. Um, and so I'm still fairly new to West Texas as an idea. And so... Um, driving out here to Dalhart was still an adventure for me. But I've got to go to a bunch of different places over the last year. And everywhere that I go, people are different. They dress different in New Orleans than people dress in Amarillo. And they dress different in Alabama than they dress in New Orleans. And people sound different in each of those places. There's a West Texas accent, and there's an Alabama accent that I have a little bit. And then there's a New Orleans Cajun accent. And the weather's different. There's so many different things about everywhere I've gone, but there is one thing in each of those places that seems to be the same. No matter where you go, everybody has a smartphone. And everywhere I go, everybody's looking at them. They may sound different, they may look different, they may talk different, but they all have a smartphone. Now, we as a society are somewhat addicted to our phones, right? Um, we don't even realize the extent to which we rely on the little supercomputers in our hands. And that's why one of the scariest moments in any modern adult's life is when you get that warning 1% notification on your smartphone. You realize it's about to die, and if you don't have a charger, that you're going to be without it until you can find that. And it's funny because all of a sudden, this little device that runs so much of your world becomes a useless chunk of glass just because the power's out. Suddenly this powerful device becomes worth about nothing. Its potential, its power, its prestige, it's all on the brink of disappearing. In a very real sense in the Old Testament, we learn that God's presence is a lot like that. The people of Israel had a temptation to put their hope and their trust and their faith in things like the Ark of the Covenant and the temple when all along the thing that really mattered was not the physical building or the, the Ark of the Covenant that sat in the Holy of Holies, but what mattered was the power of God that came to and empowered those places. That was the point the whole time where those were things that were supposed to reflect you to a greater reality than just a house of brick and stone. And so today we're actually going to get to look at a psalm in one of the Psalms of Ascent where Solomon is talking about the temple. But he's really talking about more than the temple. 
For Solomon, the temple is only serving as a picture of something much greater. And that's this. God's given us promises. He's given us all these great big promises. But without God's power, nothing will matter. And so this morning, Solomon's going to draw on stories, um, similar to like what Matt said, stories where you find out that the Bible's really just one big story, and he's going to use those promises in order to teach us a couple of important things about our lives following God. And so I'm going to read Psalm 127 for us this morning, and then we're going to jump into the text. So if y'all will, look to it with me. A Song of Ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. Now to kind of set up Psalm 127 for you, it actually serves as a bridge psalm within the Psalm of Ascents. So the Psalm of Ascents take up the place in the Bible from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And they're all songs that the Israelites would sing as they headed up to Jerusalem or headed up towards the temple. They were what the Levites would lead the people with in worship. They're supposed to be joyous. They're supposed to be hopeful. And Psalms 120 to 126 really focuses on God's faithfulness to return his people from exile. That's probably where y'all have been the last few weeks. They're traveling through the desert. God's been faithful to them to return them from exile. But now in Psalm 127, they're actually arriving at God's holy hill in Jerusalem. And God kind of changes exactly what the Psalms are going to be about. The next few weeks are going to be about God actually establishing his kingdom. So he's brought them out of exile. And now this switches to how God actually works and establishes his kingdom. And so you'll see both of those themes here in the text. So I just have two points for you this morning, if you're a note taker, as we head through the text. And the first is this, the emptiness of our efforts. And the second is the fullness of his promises. So if you just look at verse one, it starts fairly clear, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Now, there's so much here, but I want to start by talking about what exactly Solomon is talking about when he says house. Um, He's not talking about our homes. He's not talking about like his house that he's going to go stay at in Jerusalem. He's referring to a very important house, a very particular house, a house that his father David had promised would be built back in 2 Samuel 7. You see, David had promised to build a house for God's name, and Solomon as his son was the one in charge of making sure that mission actually came to fruition. Solomon was in charge of making sure the temple got built and was successful and had all of the things that God said that it needed to have. And so Solomon is saying that, I know I have this responsibility, I know I have this job, But I also understand that unless God does it, it's not going to get done. But it needs to get done. Because this house was more than just a temple. And God's promise to David and David's promise to God was more than just talking about a physical structure that was going to need to be built. 
See, really the reason that there needed to be a house for God's name was because there needed to be a symbol of God's presence with his people because this line of kings from David to Solomon was supposed to culminate in a king who would reign forever on God's throne, in God's city, with God's presence. So this temple was going to be a sign of God's like final stamp of approval on the people of Israel that I am with you and you're with me and we're going to make all of our promises sure. And those who were returning from exile, singing these songs, would expect this temple to be built, and they would expect David's throne to reign there with it forever. And so Solomon, the one in charge of it, Israel's wisest king, warns that for such a massive undertaking to work, and for something to actually go well with this, God must be the one to execute it, not man. God's kingdom will come by God's power, not by man's power. He uses a word here in the text, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That word for vain there is a Hebrew, Hebrew word, hevel. And Solomon's actually fairly known for using that word over and over and over in another book he wrote called Ecclesiastes, where he says, hevel, hevel. He says, vanity, vanity of vanities. Um, it means empty. It's like a, the, the best way to kind of describe what the Hebrew is doing here is it's a vanity, kind of like a wisp of smoke. Like you, you grab at it and there's nothing really there. He's saying our efforts apart from God working are like smoke that just kind of rises in the air and goes away. You work hard for nothing if God doesn't do the work. Your work is emptiness or it's futile. So unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor do it in emptiness. Now, I actually think, and we're going to note this a lot throughout this sermon, that Solomon is actually drawing on a text from much earlier in the Bible to write this song that we're singing. I actually think he's drawing back on the earliest text in the Bible, actually, Genesis 1 through 3. And I'm going to try to unpack that for you all so you can see exactly where I'm getting that. But he starts um, by saying that the Lord needs to keep or to watch the city, depending on your translation. Now, that word has a rich sort of biblical history, but that actually mirrors exactly what Adam's command was in the garden, right? God commands Adam once he makes the world, makes it good. He says, Adam, your one job is to watch, to keep, to guard my garden. In a sense, to guard my house. That was Adam's job, and Adam did not do a very good job. Adam failed. Because Adam worked on his own strength and on his own mind and on his own morals, and he failed in his watching. But this text is saying something that's actually a bit of a reversal. It's saying that God is the one who actually needs to watch over God's house, because on our own, none of us can do it very well. We need God to do the job that Adam failed to do. And so, in a real sense, this psalm opens, this song opens by petitioning God to protect and preserve his promises the way he did to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and now David. And so as the people of Israel are walking from the desert up Zion's hill, they see the temple off in the distance. And what they need to remember when they sing Psalm 127 is that, that God's going to accomplish his work, that God's going to watch this place. God's going to build this place. And God, if you don't do it, then it won't get done. 
God, if you don't watch your house, if you don't build your house, then nothing's getting built, nothing's getting watched. Verse 1 is also a strong statement of just God's sovereignty. God has power that no one else has. I know this is something you all probably have completely down, but, but let's just reflect on what exactly it means for God to be a sovereign creator who can build where we fail. If this text has Genesis 1 in mind, which I think it does with the, the keeper language and language we'll get to later, then surely he actually has God's creative power in mind when he talks about what God can do. When we say God is sovereign, we're talking about the God who spoke and everything came into existence. And I mean everything. The color green that these chairs are, that came into existence from the creative mind of God. Grass came into existence and galaxies came into existence. Flavors came into existence and colors, plains and mountains, watermelons and cattle, oceans and ponds, lightning and rain. Everything that exists, exists because God spoke and it happened. He made it all. The prettiest scene you can think of in the prettiest mountain range of Colorado down to the desert of the Sahara, God looked, spoke, and all of that flowed from him. Like our minds can't even begin to grasp the immensity of the sovereignty of the God who both can think of that and accomplish it. I have a very creative mind, I just don't have very useful hands. Like I can think of all sorts of things, but I can build fairly nothing. I actually brought my handyman with me, it's my wife over there, because um, at our house if something breaks, I cannot fix it. I am useless in that regard. When I married Kendall, my dad said it was the son that he never had. And so I, I have a creative mind, but I can't really do anything with it. We serve a God, though, who both thinks of everything and does everything in the most omnicompetent way possible. But when we say that God's sovereign, we don't just mean that he thought of everything, and made everything. According to Colossians 1, we believe he actually sustains everything and upholds everything. If you flew 500 light years away to the brightest burning galaxy that our spaceships can find or that our telescopes can see, God is there upholding the very matter that makes that galaxy shine. When you breathe, it's because God lets you. The chairs you're sitting in hold together because God holds them up. Your children are safe because God makes them safe. Your heart beats because God gives it permission to. Like when we say God's sovereign, we're talking about a God that's bigger than anything you can grasp and anything you can know. And that's why this God who has been sovereignly handling Israel from eternity past, Solomon can call on to handle Israel into eternity future. And Solomon knows because he knows this sovereign God that unless the Lord builds the house, they'll labor meaninglessly. They won't get anything done. And so there's, there's a void that sort of comes into the picture when we rely only on human effort. We actually, if we need God to work in the way God's going to work, we need to recognize our own inadequacy and understand the one who truly holds the power to change things. We need the builder to build or our efforts will be empty. I'm a student pastor, so I typically preach every Wednesday night. 
And every Wednesday night, I pray a prayer somewhat like this. God, if you don't show up tonight, if you don't move, if you don't do something, this won't work. I can't preach a good enough sermon, have a good enough counseling session, mentor somebody well enough to change their life. The only one who does anything in our world, the only one who makes bad things good and who works glorious deeds is God working through us, not me on my own power and not you on your own power. And in Liberty, I want to encourage you this morning. This is true for you too. The key to having a healthy, thriving, growing, spirit-filled, powerful church is not having the right guy up here preaching the right kind of sermons. It's not having things just so or a certain way. See, the, the reason that Liberty will continue to be a healthy church is not because you find another Jeremy, but it's because you have a great God. It's because you have a sovereign builder who's building his kingdom, who grows his people and makes his temple out of living stones that look a lot like you guys. He's been faithful to do it in the past, and he'll be faithful to do it in the future. And this morning, that's even true. If a heart is changed in this building, it won't be because we sang really well or preached really well. It will be because the builder built if you have discouragement this morning that turns into encouragement, it will be because the builder did it. The irony of the Christian life is that we labor and work for something that only God can do, that only God can accomplish. And on our own, we can do nothing, but with Christ, everything is possible. So we need to recognize as we open this psalm, our desperate need for God's presence. Now, the question is, if I can't do much or anything according to this text and God can do everything, then what exactly should I be doing? Should I do anything? Well, this text gives probably my favorite application of any biblical text in the Bible. And I'm going to argue what this text tells you to do is because God is sovereign and big, and mighty, you can take a nap. Because in verse 2, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So what is it Solomon wants you to do with this great news of verse 1? He wants you to rest. He wants you to sleep. This is the easiest go and do from any sermon you've ever heard. Go eat lunch, go home and take a nap. The Bible gives you permission to do it because it says here that, and, and I want you to hear this clearly, it is in vain that you wake up really early and go to sleep really late trying to get every last thing done because it actually gives you the freedom to say, I can't accomplish everything. See, God's the builder and you're not, so you can rest knowing the king of the universe is still on his throne. And this is actually a callback to the language of Genesis 1 through 3 as well, because what happens in the curse in Genesis 3, we all think about the pain and childbearing, but the other thing that God says is that you're going to work the ground and eat the bread of anxious toil. 
This is a farming community, so a lot of you probably know exactly what that feels like. I grew up on an 800-acre Angus cattle farm, and I can remember during certain seasons when we had lots of calves being born, I mean, it was you wake up early and you go to bed late. It's busy, and it's hard. And my dad used to always tell me, you know, if you don't work hard, you won't eat. And in my community, that was basically true. And if I didn't work hard, my dad wouldn't let me eat. And so... I understand this idea of eating the bread of anxious toil. Like I, I work the sweat of my brow. I, I beat myself into submission to get this job done just so I can go home and eat. But God actually says just working hard for working hard's sake is vain. And so he says, sleep. And I think the idea or the incentive in this text here is this. God can perform more good for those who trust him while they sleep, then they can perform with anxious labor themselves while they're awake. That's how big God is. He can get more done for you while you nap than you can get done for you while you work your hardest. Can you think of a better reason not to rise early and not to go to bed late and not to eat the bread of anxious toil than to know that we serve a sovereign God who's working and he's going to use me, but he also doesn't need me and I have this regular reminder of my life that he doesn't need me. I mean, think about it. Have you ever wondered why God in his infinite wisdom created us to be unconscious for one third of our life? Like, like think about it for a moment. You don't remember, know about, recall understand, are conscious of one-third of your entire life. Like, you might say you live 99 years, but in reality, you really only lived 66. You slept 33 of those years away. That's just how it works. You sleep 8 of 24. Maybe a little less, or maybe a little more. But you sleep one-third of your life away. God could have, in his infinite sovereignty, designed a human that didn't have to sleep. That He could have gotten 24 hours of good work out of a day, but that's not what he chose to do. And why did he decree that? And I'll give you my opinion. And that's he wanted to give a universal reminder to the human race that we are his children and we need to own up to it. We are so frail that we have to become helpless and unconscious and blind and weak every day in order to live it all. Sleep is a terribly humbling experience because we're never more weak, never more childlike than when we sleep. Yet in the care of a sovereign God who holds all things together, you're actually never safer than when you sleep in Christ. Now, verses one and two kind of bracket off here. God's sovereign, your efforts are empty, you should take a nap. And this is where this text gets odd, strange, confusing. I actually had a really difficult time with prep because the transition between 1 and 2 and 3 and 5 seem like they're a part of different psalms. Like, it doesn't seem like the flow of thought is there. What do families have to do with the temple and God's building? Well, in a real sense, like we said earlier, the house spoken of is about more than just bricks and gold. It's about a temple of flesh and blood. It's about a dynasty. It's about a people. It's about families. 
It's about a temple of holy priests that God's building out of his people. And so what is the way that God builds his house? Well, he builds his house, frankly, with babies. And that's where this text is going to go next. So we have the emptiness of our effort. We have the fullness of God's promises here next. So to go back to our Genesis 3 idea that's kind of running through this text, after God creates the world, and after Adam and Eve fail to watch the world, and after God curses the world and tells them they're going to eat the bread of anxious toil, he gives a final promise to them. That there's going to be a child, there's going to be a seed of the woman that's going to crush the head of the snake, and he was going to promise that even though you're going to have pain in childbearing, that this little baby is actually going to be your salvation. And so here in Psalm 127, where the emptiness of the fallen world and man's inability to keep and build um, are very evident, it's followed by the hope represented by the birth of male descendants in verse 3. I mean, when you think about what Solomon's doing here, just from a historical perspective, um, Matt talked about it in the children's sermon um, you have this guy named David, he becomes very important, sets up a covenant with God. There's supposed to be somebody who reigns on his throne forever and ever. And then he has Solomon, the kingdom grows, and it looks like, wow, that might actually happen. Like God might actually keep his promise in that way. And they all knew that their hope as a nation was dependent on male heirs to, to hold the throne down and to continue David's line in perpetuity forever. And that was also true of all the nation's families. Because in the same way that a line of kings descended from David depended on male heirs, um, in Israel's culture, the family's inheritance also passed down through male heirs. And so when God says that he's giving these people sons, he's saying that he's giving them basically a reward of faithfulness or he's giving them their hope for the next generation that that their sons that they have will, will bless their fathers. And that's true in the kingly sense, but that's also true in the familial sense. And whereas work done without regard, regard for God will produce emptiness in verses 1 and 2, sons, uh, or sons will stand as a lasting inheritance and a reward from Yahweh in verse 3. And again, this is still drawing on these promises that Solomon understands from Genesis because the first thing God did on the creation of man and woman was to bless them and command them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's kingdom goes forward with people. And so the plan for Adam and Eve was y'all are going to have babies and they're going to have babies and they're going to have babies and they're going to have babies. And eventually the world's going to be full of people who recognize God and his promises. And that's going to be the way that God does his work and builds his people. I mean, you even see that in places like Exodus, right? The, the people of Egypt try to like tamp down the Israelis. And what's the thing they say in Exodus 2? Well, they just have babies so fast. We can't, we can't keep up with them. Like that's what God's people do. They, they grow God's kingdom by raising up godly children. And so... Um, it's important for us to know, though, it's not just about God's blessing of godly children, but it's the godly child that's eventually going to come from this line of David, from this line of Solomon. 
like we learned earlier in the service, the story that we read, even these poems and songs are, are all part of one big grand tapestry, one big beautiful story that's pointing out and screaming the name of one seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent forever and who's going to reign on David's throne forever. It's all about Jesus. And the Bible just gives us these little breadcrumbs all throughout, even places like the Psalms that should draw us to and turn our eyes to that king. Now, to continue on kind of in the context though, if, if God's plan and grand design was for men and women to be fruitful and multiply, then how do children play a role in his narrative? Solomon's going to give us an analogy here to help us here near the end. He's going to say in verse 4 that children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. So Solomon compares children to arrows. Now, I think the idea here is that the man of God can do battle against Satan's kingdom by raising up righteous sons and shooting them into the area of the enemy like arrows. This should make you think of movies like Braveheart or like 300 or something like that where you have these scenes where arrows black out the sun and are falling down on enemies and they're trying to keep their shields up and everything, but there's just too many arrows falling down on them. That's, that's how God is using godly children. That's how you should think about your own children. They're not just here to vicariously live out your own dreams and your own purposes. They're missional people. Like kids in here, I even encourage you, and I talk with my own students in my youth group about this regularly. God's intention for you and in giving you to godly parents like this is that you would grow up, trust in Jesus, and carry on the mission that your parents are on right now. I would wager in a room like this, there's even some people in here who you're sitting in here by a mom or a dad who raised you and was faithful and they sent you out and now you're back here on God's mission together. Righteous children are like arrows in the hands of the enemy. They're the weapons God uses to wage his war against evil in the world. And there's this idea in our culture that can be so prevalent is that children are somehow a burden to be tolerated and not a blessing to be celebrated. But, but all over the Bible, childbearing is seen as a grace and a blessing. God accomplishes mighty things through families dedicated to him and his purposes. And if you want to know one surefire, easy way that you can impact Dalhart for Jesus... It's have a bunch of babies that you raise up to be godly men and women, and you let them live and work and breathe in Dalhart. That's how God so often organically and naturally grows out his kingdom. And in a world that has less and less kids every year, let's enjoy the blessing of God giving us godly children to raise. But now I also, and this is more of a moment of personal privilege, I think while we talk about this though, it is important to note that there is sensitivity around this topic, recognizing that not every godly couple is immediately blessed with tons and tons of children. Um, you might have noticed throughout the sermon I've referenced my wife, but I haven't referenced my children, and that's because I don't have any. We've, we've wanted children for a very long time, and that's not something that God has blessed us with. And I think that we need to be careful to remember that in the Bible, um, 
while God does use big godly families in order to do his work and to show us great lessons and to build his kingdom, he often uses barren families to teach us lessons about ourselves as well. See, God uses both throughout his story to do great things, even as I teach through 1 Samuel with my youth right now. We remember stories like that of Hannah who wanted a child and couldn't have one, yet God used her faith to shape a nation. So I I would remind you, um, if you're in this room right now and you hear a promise like that godly children are a blessing, um, and if you even sit in this room like this and you look at all the children and say, like, I want that but can't have that, I want you to know God sees you, God knows, God's sovereign in your situation, And while I know it can be difficult, through God's word we see many barren women like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Samson's mother, Michael, Elizabeth, who were all considered godly and wonderful and God used them in their way to do wonderful and mighty things. And so while I think it is a good thing to want children and that when we have children we should celebrate what God is doing through them and that it should be the normative way that Christian couples live and act, We should celebrate faithfulness wherever we find it. Now, just a little more here in this text about what's going on with with why the children are so helpful. It says, you know, when a man goes down to the gate here in verse 5, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with him. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. When a man went down to the city, um, to Jerusalem, to the gate, that was often where people gathered for like business proposals and talk and work. Um, I don't know what the place is in Dalhart where the old men go and get coffee at way too early in the morning and sit and talk about things, but that's the gate. That's, That's where people would go and they would sit and they would talk and they would have business discussions and whatnot. And that's the place where it says if he has godly sons, he would not be put to shame because he would have a number of sons with him to run the business. He would have a number of sons with him to plead his cause, to do his work. And if there was a dispute to be settled in court, um, which also met at the gate, his sons would be there to support him. He wouldn't be alone. He wouldn't be put to shame. And then lastly, sons would be there to take care of him and his wife in their old age so that they wouldn't live according um, to the fifth commandment in shame. And so what this psalm is trying to get at is God's going to be faithful to sovereignly build his house by giving the families of Israel godly sons in which to grow the kingdom with. And and this was a hopeful song for them to sing. God, build your house, but build it in the way you want and how you will. But the unfortunate part of this psalm, we know that Solomon was supposed to build the temple and have this line that stayed on David's throne forever and ever. But in all the things Solomon talks about in this text, he actually pretty much fails on every count. Did Solomon maintain purity of worship in the temple in the house that God built? No. The temple was brilliant for a time, but it lost the glory and it fell apart. His hold on his kingdom was insecure and it just crumbled at the end of his reign. And the glorious kingdom of Israel that had been brought back from exile in Psalms 120 to 126 went back to exile again. 
His marriages did produce lots of sons, but they were not sons that were righteous. As his son who took the throne from him was the very one who split the kingdom of Israel in two. And so Solomon wrote a song asking for something that he did not see, that he did not realize, promises that he did not get to see fulfilled in his time, which again is almost exactly how it should be, because Solomon at the end of his reign was trying to build on whose power? Solomon's. Solomon said, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Yet he says, give me all the wisdom, God, because I want to do this by myself. And so often we can be that same way too, where we affirm the right things about God theologically. We, we say the right things and ask for the right things, but when the rubber meets the road, we want to do it because we're West Texas people who like to pull our own selves up by our own bootstraps. And we end up just like Solomon with our kingdoms falling apart if God is not the one who moves. Yet at the same time, this text is full of great hope because even in the face of Solomon's failure, God's plan still continues to unfold. Beyond Solomon's reign and the history of Israel, we see the fulfillment of God's grand design for this in the person and work of Jesus. Failure of any leader should not surprise us. They're all pale imitations of the real thing. But in this text, God the builder, the temple, the righteous child who's like a an arrow, they're all wrapped up in the person of Jesus who comes to dwell with us. And through this Jesus, we're made sons and daughters of God. We're made arrows in the quiver of the Almighty. And beyond a historical reference to Solomon's temple, this text points us forward to an even greater cosmic temple, the dwelling that awaits us, as Revelation tells us in chapter 21. I saw no more temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. A new Eden where God will build and dwell with his heritage forever, where it won't be on Adam to watch and keep, but on God in the form of our Lord Jesus Christ, who watches and keeps his people forever. And God's building that house today with you, with Liberty Baptist Church, a temple built on the cornerstone of Jesus, built up with believers who are holy stones. And this was a song that was sang in hope of a temple that was being built. And it's no different today. As we ascend Zion's hill by the power of the Spirit to that eternal temple, let us live in full reliance on the God who builds and watches while we rest. We have great hope today because we have a great builder. We have great hope because we have a great Savior in Jesus. And maybe you're here today and you don't know him. And you've tried building your life on your own, you've tried putting together your own temples brick by brick by brick, and you realize that you just aren't sovereign enough to do it. You just don't have it in you. This morning, God actually gives you a great promise. You don't. You can rest, but the only place you can find the rest your soul longs for is in him. So this morning, by repentance and faith, you can know him. I know that after the service, Matt, or maybe the person beside you, or me, or anybody would love to talk with you more about what it looks like to follow this Jesus. But if you're here this morning and you know him, 
but you still really want to build. You still really want to hold on to your own kingdom. I encourage you this morning to let go because you will work in vain until you let it be God that works. So Liberty, I'm thankful to be here and to partner with you as we build in Amarillo and you build in Dalhart and we all sit and rest under one builder until we together are one temple dedicated to our God forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. Pray with me. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all of our blessings. God, continue to build this church by your spirit, by your power. Let us rely on your sovereignty. Let us trust in the good news of your son. We ask all this in the name of the one who wills and works and watches. Our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, is in his name we pray. Amen.